This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you, Professor Marcus. Um, it's wonderful to be here uh, and um, to see so many people still um, engaged in this very long, productive day. It's been a great day. When one talks about the public sphere, outside of performance in American studies and a few other fields, the subject is often met with skeptical interest and the belief that it will be fine. Of course, this attitude comes from some of the folks who have submerged in some form of the sciences, so in touch with their experiments that, to use a popular expression, they actually believe their own press. So this panel is not last because we are the entertainment, no. The final pass the mic has come to this panel because to give a shout out to hip hop, we are the magnificent, okay? Our focus is not on a theory of diversity, but some of the creative political things, people, that is black people, African Americans, brown people, Latinos, Hispanics, Asians, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Pacific Islanders, gendered people, transgendered, etc., do not represent, do what they do to represent within their group, what they do to represent to others, and what they do to represent in terms of power. In particular, this panel is presenting and analyze then what we try to do to expose, represent, destroy, embrace, and who we want to seduce and send shout outs to. All within the racial, sexual, gendered, spiritual, and class-oriented world that we not only live in, but strive to thrive in. We are trying and struggling to represent and critique the arguments and artistic creativity flourishing around these issues. This reminds me of a critique of hip-hop artists that I finally paid attention, attention to lyric, uh, recently in a lyric from Taleb Kweli. And I say I finally paid attention because it came from Giuseppe, who's in Milan and has a site called the Hip Hop Reader uh, in Milan, uh, uh, you know, Italy, right? And on his site it says, Talib Kweli Africa Dream. And this is the quote he's got. These cats drink champagne and toast to death and pain, like slaves on a slave ship, talking about who's got the flyest chain. Okay. So we're talking about not just having fun, but the critique itself. Yes, we are entertainment, but it's not mindless fun. Our entertainment is also political, not in the political and social lecture to make you feel bad. Rather, it is the one that encourages you to walk, talk, listen with a critique ready for discussion and engagement as a speaker, as a listener, and a witness. In preparing these opening remarks, I immediately thought about hip-hop MCs who present themselves as, they, as though they are entities lording over lands and peoples, always there to save the day or at least tell the truth about what's happening. It is also about power in the end then. It is about race. It is about ethnicity, who you are and who you want to be. In 1989, way back in 1989, Special Ed, in his uh, really, uh, album, Youngest in Charge, had a lyric, a, a rhyme called The Magnificent. He was 16 years old, and I'm going to uh, paraphrase him to some extent. He says, I am the magnificent. 
I'm the magnificent with the sensational style. I can go on and on for like a mile a minute. I get in like a car and drive. And if the ideas smash, I can still survive. Because we're the people of steel on the wheel, and we're steering, or rather playing on the record that you're hearing. You might not understand what we're saying at first. If not, we'll happily put it in reverse. Representing the magnificence associated with race and ethnicity is an incredible panel that I'd like to introduce to you. First, Glenda Carpio from Harvard University is Associate Professor of African and African American Studies and of English and American Literature and Language. She received um, at Harvard University, she received her BA in English from Vassar and PhD in English from Stanford. Okay, Cal, University of California, Berkeley. She began her teaching. <laughs> Uh, I do have that hip-hop side, you know, but anyway. She began her teaching career in Compton, California, through the Teach for America program where she taught eighth and fourth grade. Thereafter, she taught Latin American studies at NYU while writing her dissertation. She's been at Harvard since 2002, and has just finished her first book, Laughing Fit to Kill, Black Humor in the Fictions of Slavery, forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Uh, in the spring of 2007, Professor Carpio received the uh, Ab Abramson Award for Excellence and Sensitivity in Undergraduate Teaching. She's now working on a second book project, tentatively titled, I don't think it's, this is still the, the title, Black Narrative and Poetry from Latin America. Um, um, Doreen Kondo is, will be our second presenter from USC. Doreen Kondo is Professor of Anthropology and American Studies and the former Director of Asian American Studies. She's, the co she's the author of Crafting Selves, Power, Gender, and Discourses of Identity in a Jap uh, Japanese Workplace. Uh, this book was the winner of the J.I. Staley Prize for a book having an impact on the field of anthropology. It was also the best-selling anthropological monograph of the past decade for University of Chicago Press. Her second book about face, Performing Race and Fashion in Theater, published by Routledge, won the Cultural and Literary Studies Award from the Association of Asian American Studies. And she's cur currently working on a new book, Revisions of Race on Race and Performance in the United States, States, which forms the basis for her remarks today. Kondo's first play, Disgraceful Conduct, received Mixed Blood Theater's We Don't Need No Stinking Dramas National Comedy Playwriting Award in 2000. And in 2003, uh, Asian American Repertory Theater produced her multiracial relationship uh, comedy, But Can He Dance? She is currently at work revising a play uh, entitled Singless about the afterlife of the trauma of Japanese-American internment in generations born after the camps. Singless has had readings in Los Angeles and in New York at the New York Theater Workshop. Um, Kondo was also a dramaturge for the world premiere of Anna DeVere Smith's Twilight Los Angeles, 1992, and it's filming for PBS. Her other dramaturgical work includes workshops for Smith's house arrest for the arena stage and Mark Taper Forum. Um, Mark Anthony Neal uh, is at Duke University. He is professor of black popular culture in the Department of African and African American Studies and director of the Institute for Critical U.S. Studies at Duke University. He holds a doctorate in American Studies from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Mark uh, Anthony Neal is the author of four books, What the Music Said, Black Popular Music and Black Public Culture, Soul Babies, Black Popular Culture and the Soul Aesthetic, Songs in the Key of Life, A Rhythm and Blues Nation, 
and the, um, the New Black Man, Rethinking Black Masculinity. Of those uh, most recent book, noted scholar Michael Eric Dyson writes, New Black Man is a brilliant, courageous, and engaging and imaginative, imaginative manifesto, manifesto for a radical new vision of black masculinity. Neil is also the co-editor with Murray Foreman of That's the Joint, the Hip Hop Studies Reader, and is currently working on two books, the T&I Mixtape uh, for in New York University Press and Street Songs, Post-Civil Rights Desire, Corporate America, and the R&B Nation. He's appeared in several documentaries, including Brian Hurt's acclaimed Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes, uh, John Amkumfra's Am Urban Soul, and the BBC's Seep I'm sorry, BBC's Soul Deep, the story of black popular music. And he's a frequent commentator on NPR's News and Notes with Farai Chidea uh, and Tell Me More with Michelle Martin. <clears throat> His blog, Critical Noir, appears in Vibe magazine, and he also blogs at newblackman.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, it is a great pleasure to introduce this panel. Um, I look forward to what I will be in. I'm sure, an incredibly stimulating and provocative discussion. And we shall begin with Professor Glenda Carpio. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, after hearing all those statistics, many of them very depressing, um, I think it's time that we talk about black humor, okay? Um, at least for a while, okay? So, um, what I'm going to be talking about today is actually the role of black women in humor and the way that they enter the public sphere through humor. Okay, but, um, but at the beginning, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on black humor um, in general. Um, so we know for centuries, African Americans have faced racism in its various manifestations and guises through a rich tradition of humor, and so have Im immigrants, of course. Um, one need, need only look at Americo Paredes' uh, great um, Uncle Remus Conchile, and uh, Guillermo Gomez Peña's um, large body of theatrical work to look at that. But today I'm going to be focusing um, on the African-American tradition. So as I was just saying, there's this rich, very long, uh, centuries-long tradition. And um, of course, for centuries, people who oppressed African-Americans uh, found that humor puzzling. How could a people so oppressed find any reason to laugh? We might ask the same question at, at the end of today's uh, long day, where's laughter and all of this? It would seem ridiculous in some ways, but um, I'd argue, to the contrary, incredibly necessary. And not just for the relief theory of humor, of which I'll say more in a moment. Of course, minstrelsy went a long way on, on explaining, quote-unquote, the puzzle of black laughter. People, black people laughed because they were simpletons. That, so this ideologies went. Nothing, of course, could be farther from the truth. Black American humor began as a rested freedom, the freedom to laugh at that which was unjust and cruel in order to create distance from what would otherwise obliterate a sense of self and community. Until well into the 20th century, however, it had to be cloaked in secrecy, lest it be read as transgressive and punished by violence. Hence the popular slave aphorism, got one mind for white folks to see, another for what I know is me. Despite life-threatening injunctions against la black laughter, African-American humor flourished first under the mask of allegory and increasingly uh, in more direct forms. It developed a Janus face identity. On the one hand was a fairly 
non-threatening, innocuous form that catered to whites' uh, beliefs on, on, about the inferiority of blacks, but that usually marked a masked aggression. And on the other, a more assertive and acerbic, acerbic humor that often targeted racial injustice, but that was generally reserved for in-group um, interactions. Mel Watkins' um, great book, um, On the Real Side, uh, it's, it's a very good place to begin to look at this, the history. Black Americans' humor has often functioned as a way of affirming their humanity in the face of its violent denial. In order to confront the maddening illusions of race and the insidiousness of racism, black folk have laughed long and hard, perhaps in the tragicomic notes of the blues, or in the life-affirming spirit of righteous insurgency, or both. Black laughter is, and I adamantly want to stress this, not only a coping mechanism, however, although most people think, it is, think about it only in this fashion. Black humor is also a rich source of creative energy. Still, by most accounts, African-American humor, like other humor that arises from oppression, has provided a balm, a release of anger and aggression, a way of coping with the often too painful consequences of racism. In this way, it has been linked to one of the, one of the three major hum, uh, theories on humor, the relief theory, made popular by Freud, which posits that we laugh as a way to release up pent-up aggression. Um, Freud claimed that the tendentious jokes, what he called tendentious jokes, which he, of which he identified two main kinds, the obscene and the hostile joke, allow the joker and his audience to release energy used for the purposes of inhibition. Much, but certainly not all, African-American humor can be understood as a kind of relief-inducing humor. Indeed, under the violent restrictions of slavery and segregation, African-Americans became experts at the tendentious jokes. They often left people, white folk, with the with the puzzling and, and sneaky suspicions that they had just been made fun of, but not, not knowing exactly how. Um, and so they were, it, it, already there you can see the creative energy of being able to insult somebody to their face and not leaving them unknowing whether they've just been insulted or not. African-American humor is also, although less commonly, linked to a second major theory of humor, the superiority theory, which posits that we laugh at other people's misfortunes. In some ways, one can think of the tradition of signifying, including the play of the dozens, of boasting and toasting, to be, as belonging to this kind of humor. Although the verbal battle of capping and your mama jokes savor verbal wit over any mean-spirited competition or put-down. The signifying tradition is generally known as mother wit, and departs significantly from the Freudian model of humor, which stresses sublimation, in that this tradition, the signifying tradition, relishes exposure and does not depend on the joke form at all. Instead, it is mainly attitudinal and visual and depends on the verbal dexterity of the dozens, of the toasts, which are long, metrical, and rhythmical, complex compositions that most people who love hip-hop don't know anything about, sadly enough. Um, and the telling of what is long stories um, that are otherwise known as lies. It remained largely segregated until Richard Pryor broke out of his original image as a slim, mild-mannered comedian with conch hair who never cursed, believe it or not, um, and usually told, told charming jokes patterned after Bill Cosby's material. But he freaked out in 1969, uh, left everything, went to Berkeley, um, and reinvented himself and came out with some of the most amazing material. Um, and, um, 
you know, he basically outed uh, black humor from the segregated communities in which it was guarded for a long time. Of course, other people before him had started the work, um, notably Moms Mabley, Dick Gregory, Godfrey Cambridge, Phil Wilson, Rick Fox, Bill Cosby, but it was Pryor who really went all the way out, went where people had never ventured out before. Okay. So I've outlined two, so far, two major theories, the relief theory, priority theory, and there's a third um, major theory, which is the incongruity theory, which for me is the most interesting. Um, the, this theory, simply put, uh, it's a theory that suggests that we laugh when our expectations are somehow disturbed. Such a simple definition hardly argues for why I'm interested in, the, in this theory, so let me explain. Right? The humor of incongruity generally entails the playing of what-if games um, that actually people in you know, theory do a lot with deconstruction, with language that's really inaccessible, right? But in humor, in the incongruity theory, you can do this what-if games that suspend normativity, right? They, they are games that momentarily reconfigure habits of mind and language, and that can lead to what Ralph Ellison, after um, Kenneth Burke, called perspective by incongruity. At its best, the humor of incongruity allows us to see the world inverted, to consider transpositions of time and place, and to get us, especially when the humor is hot enough to push our buttons, to question the habits of mind that we may fall in, into as we critique race, especially people in this room trying to change the, the way that race operates in the world, right? We, we are not safe from racism, right? So humor often gets us to keep, keeps us on our toes, right? This is the kind of humor that I deal with in my book. Um, and uh, especially I focus on how uh, writers and, um, and writers from both the civil rights black power generation, the post-civil uh, rights soul babies, to quote Mark, um, stage what I, what I call rituals of redress with, with respect to um, slavery. Um, at the center of this project um, is a concern about the abiding um, impact of racial and gender stereotypes produced by slavery and how artists and writers use humor to confront their legacy. But uh, today I'm not going to be talking about that. You can read the book, it's coming up pretty soon. Um, what I'm more, more concerned with, as I said at, at the beginning, is uh, how black women have used humor as a strategy to, to, uh, for dealing with what's called, in some circles, triple jeopardy, right? Which is um, the notion of, you know, and race, we have the Du Boisian notion of double consciousness, and then you have gender, right? So there's this triple jeopardy, right? Um, and I'd like to focus on this because unlike black humor, which is much, um, has entered the mainstream um, as in general, uh, black female humor has yet to fully enter the broad public sphere of American mainstream culture, right? And I want to ask some questions as to why, and I want to give you some examples of people who have tried, who've been trying to enter that sphere, right? To some extent, this um, lack of, of uh, presence, right, um, has to do with the struggles that women across racial divisions have had um, with respect to humor. Traditionally, men have been able to be satirists and uh, physical comics, um, but women, on the other hand, ha have prefer preferably been neither. Um, if they have ventured into this cultural forbidden land, they have had to restrain themselves displaying sly wit and, um, and you know, careful humor, none of the outlandish, raucous, screaming kind of demonstrative kind, right? Um, because it's simply not ladylike, right? Um, of course, we have had uh, several pioneers in both, in across uh, race, right? Uh, Margaret Cho, uh, of course, and before that, uh, Lucille Ball, Lily Tomlin, Afri African-American women, as, you know, the early blues women, um, 
were able to kind of ad lib and be very saucy and funny in their um, in their uh, lines. You know, you think um, uh, even Nina, Nina Simone, right? When she says, "I want a little hot dog in between my buns," right? Um, you know, it, all kinds of like innuendos that also, also are you know really express a kind of humor, right? Um, so, um, two important figures that I think um, are predecessors um, are um, Moms Mabley and Josephine Baker. And what I'd like to do uh, today is to think about where, at the, you know, they've left two very distinct kinds of legacies um, that I think are, are present in today's uh, contemporary uh, uh, black female com uh, com uh, comic performers. Okay. So, um, the two ways of approaching this public sphere from uh, as a woman, um, Moms Mabley, um, you know, personified one, somebody who uh, emphasized racial affiliation at the expense of her sexuality, right? She was this mom, queen mother, uh, comforting. Um, she made everybody feel all right, um, but she was, you know, the, sort of this old granny. And then we have on the other uh, side, Josephine Baker, who um, actually highlighted both her race and, um, and gender, um, but exoticized them both in a way that backfired, right? So, um, you know, I, I, very quickly, I'll give you a background on Mabley and, um, and Baker, and then I'll talk about uh, the queens of comedy and Wanda Sykes. Okay. Um, so, because I want to show you some Wanda Sykes, I'm going to speed through a couple of things, right? So, um, Mabley, uh, who some of you might not know, she was born in 1897 in North Carolina and became a dancer and a singer by the time she was 16, but quickly turned to comedy in traveling 10 shows. Early in her career, Mabley assumed the character of this, er, uh, you know, old lady, right? And as Mel Watkins puts it, um, the guys provided the buffer um, of necessary to quell resistance to a woman doing a single comic act, right? The risk that she took, of course, is that, um, and one that she might not be in, she could not um, help at the time, right, is of desexualizing um, the black female figure, right? Baker, by contrast, um, debuted, uh, debuted uh, uh, a a show in Paris in 1925 in which she often performed, she was a very gorgeous woman um, and an incredibly talented dancer. And she would often kind of dress up as a primitive, right, and wear very little clothing, right, but she combined this sort of overt sexual act with kind of clownish um, antics, right, that made sexuality, that robbed sexuality in some ways of its, um, it's sort of a sort of eroticism and made it more strange, made it more of as an act to be looked at, right, and thought about. Okay. Um, of course, she, um, you know, she famously put on uh, the banana skirt that became actually something that she, that typecast her. She was unable to, um, you know, when she wanted to break out in the 1930s from this sort of primitive guys that she sought to manipulate, she couldn't get away from this, right? She said, uh, about the skirt of bananas. Oh, how this idea has turned ridiculous, Baker said. How many drawings and caricatures it has inspired. Only the devil, apparently, could have invented something like that. While the identity of the costume designer remains unknown, Baker's appeal in her primitive guise is all too clear. Baker became the banana belt, thus inadvertently conflating two forms of colonialist consumption, that of a colonial product which like sugar, tobacco, or coffee has been frequently associated with pleasure and that of black female bodies. 
During the 1930s, Baker uh, made overt efforts to work against the typecasting, especially by adding androgynous twists to her act. She also redefined her famous skirt. She turned the bananas into absurd signifiers of black male phallic threat. As early as 1927, the bananas had become even harder and more threatening, so much so that they look more like spikes than bananas. Okay. So where's the legacy of Baker and Moms Bailey today? Right? As a result of continued stereotypes of black women as large, domineering, emasculating, um, women uh, who fail to conform to essentialized notions of womanhood, black women comic performance consistently focus on the thematic issues of body image, male-female relationships, and racial and gender identities. At the Deaf Comedy Jam um, production, Queens, The Queens of Comedy, um, it's a production of, you know, performance by four different women um, in the Memphis Orpheum, uh, Orpheum Theater. Okay. And um, their live performance is now available through DVD and thus, um, transcend, you know, it's out into the public sphere. Okay, so one of the questions I have um, is, are they really the queens of comedy? How, how good of comics are they? And implicit in this question is, um, you know, how, it's, a, it's a tough act to do, right, to be a female comedian. How successful are they and what strategies do they use when they're performing? Okay. Um, so, um, as one critic suggests, the queens of comedy use what Cheryl Keyes identifies as four principal, as four principal characters in um, female hip-hop uh, hip artists, um, in the work of female uh, hip-hop artists. Um, the queen mother, the fly girl, the sister with an attitude, and the lesbian, right? So we have Monique, who, um, you know, sort of adopts this uh, figure of the large and in charge fly girl, and her standard line is, once you go fat, you never go back, right? And this is, flies in the, um, in the face of stereotype, the stereotype of the large asexual black woman, right? Um, just to give you some examples, I don't have time to really show you the queens of comedy, but um, I wanted just to give you what they are trying to do. Um, Adeline Givens, another one of the queens of comedy, uh, her standard line is, I'm such a fucking lady, right? Which is a direct opposition to what a lady should say or should not say, right? Often she reminds um, women to, to really to love themselves or to at least accept themselves um, as the brown, black, brown, beige, cream, damn near white, white women that they might be, or the straight, curly, bushy, kinky, long, damn near, down to the waist, medium, short hair and, and that they have, and the breast, the breast and hips of varied and sundry proportions that they may have, right? To me, when I watch this comedy, I think, you know, personally, I mean, what's, hum what's funny to some people may not be funny to others, right? But to me, while I appreciate this humor, I find it more like it's the humor of therapy, it's the, the humor of sort of licking your wounds um, in public, and I wonder the efficacy of that kind of humor, okay? Um, Cheryl Underwood, um, uh, get, you know, uh, performs as what she calls the, is, the easy bitch, right? And she talks very explicitly about, about sex, right? Which um, in many ways, um, in many ways, you know, she adopts, uh, appropriates the language of male chauvinism to critique, uh, you know, ideologies of race and gender. Again, um, I find this therapeutic, but not necessarily um, humor at its best, okay? Um, Ms. Laura, uh, Hayes, it, 
adopts the queen of the uh, queen mother and the mom's Bailey tradition. And again, I find that therapeutic, but not necessarily the best. Okay, I was going to give, uh, go through more of this kind of stuff with you, but I'm running out of time. Okay, so um, I want to give you um, just one. You know, the, I wouldn't want to uh, dismiss the queens of comedy altogether. I do think that there's a kind of edge in there, and the performances are really interesting in terms of what they have to tell us about what it, what, what it feels like to be a, a black female um, persona in the public sphere. Okay? Um, but I really want to uh, show you what Wanda Sykes is doing because I think that Wanda Sykes, uh, you know, in the Queens of Comedy, I think they take some of Moms Bailey, some of Josephine Baker, and they push it out, right? Um, and I think often um, the humor stops just short of releasing real potential for artistry. Okay. What I find interesting in, in Wanda Sykes is that she focuses not only on content but on form, and the fact that she actually she's um, she navigates the triple jeopardy by being really, um, uh, she's, she skillfully manipulates that being in that position, sometimes de-emphasizing race and highlighting gender or doing the opposite, but not both at the same time, right? And it always the focus is on the craft of, of, of being a performer, okay? And so she, she she puts the identities that are placed upon her over sexualized or desexualized woman, black woman aside and, and kind of treads on top of these things rather than ha have to aggressively put it on you. Okay. So um, what I want to show you right now is, uh, is from her piece, um, Tongue Untied. She begins this, uh, this, this uh, performance actually of we can only see five minutes today, uh, by actually talking about politics. She begins by, by uh, making fun of the absurdity of you know, the weapons of mass destruction, web of lies that uh, W created. And, and thus, um, from the get-go, Sykes really distinguishes herself from most um, comedians, uh, uh, black, white, Latina comedians, um, because she addresses politics, which is a realm, uh, humor, politics, women, those three words don't really go together in, public, in the public sphere in America or elsewhere, right? So, um, you know, for the first sort of six, no, the first four uh, segments or chapters in this DVD, she talks about politics. And in this one, she goes into the realm of gender um, and, ra and race in a very, very subtle way. And so what I'm going to leave you with is kind of a few questions so we can talk about the Q&A um, time. It's watch her, how she manipulates um, her body, right? She, she, she is a black woman, but she doesn't shout it out, right? Um, and she um, appeals to a mixed audience. You can actually see um, from the um, audience with the camera. Okay. I, was, I was in Florida last week. A lot of strip clubs in Florida. Good grief. Everyone they closed in New York, they moved to Florida. <laughs> I mean, Florida got so many strip clubs. I mean, they need to change their state flag to just a brass pole, you know. <laughs> Florida. <laughs> I, w I went to this one strip club, you know, with the guys after the show, we went to this club. And we get to the strip club and they actually tried to charge me a cover. Can you believe that? Want me to pay? I was like, pay? Oh, you got your damn mind? I was like, come on, man, I brought my own titties. 
You expect me to pay to see titties? Shoot. I can see titties for free all day if I want to. Yeah, I can even play with them. Can you do that now? Well, I ain't think so. Oh, come on, BYOT, man. Hmm. <laughs> well, I ain't gonna lie to y'all. Once I got inside and saw those triple G's and stuff, I went back and paid. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, I get it now. I see. Yeah, these are professional titties in here. Oh, good Lord, no, my titties couldn't do that. No. Yeah, I guess if your titties bigger than your head, then yeah. You should be able to pay some bills with that. There's <laughs> one, one club I went to, man. That, that was the end of it for me. We went to this one strip club, man. It was like the lowest, the most nastiest, I mean, just raw, naked ass. I mean, you know, there's no DJ, no liquor license, and the girls, they didn't even bother dancing. They just stood up there. Look at it! <laughs> Is this what you want, huh? Look at it! I was like, oh my God, I got to get up out of here. I'm trying to sneak out, no? <laughs> Yeah. But the guys, they were just sitting there looking at it. They, yeah. And that's what, you know, and it's not like they were like weird looking freaky guys. They were just a regular, average looking guy, but they just needed to look at it, you know. And that's when I had a whole new respect for men. I was like, boy, because that must be really hard being a man. You know, had that thing up in your head, messing with you all the time. You know, how do you get any work done? How, how do y'all hold down jobs, man? You know, you at work minding your business and all of a sudden that thing just kicks in. Let's go look at it. <laughs> Come on, man, what's the last time we seen it? Let's go look at it. I'm glad women don't have any additional thoughts like that because we, we don't have any room for them. We don't have any room for additional thoughts. That's all, that's all, that's all women do is think. We're thinkers. Think all the time, right? Can't stop thinking. Think, think, think. Can't stop thinking. Ladies, have you ever remember the time when you had a moment of silence in your head? <laughs> Doesn't happen, does it? No. Always thinking. Sometimes you can't even sleep because you won't shut the hell up. <laughs> you in the bed and your mind is just racing about nothing. Just, mm, I need to talk to her tomorrow because I didn't like the way she spoke to me today. And I'm not going to have this uncomfortable thing going on between us. Did I lock the door? I should have bought those shoes. Where's my high school yearbook? Ooh, what you gonna have for lunch tomorrow? Mm, I don't know. Why you think about lunch? You need to have a good breakfast. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start every morning with a good breakfast. Maybe I'll start that low-carb diet. That seems to be working for a lot of people. What was my third grade English teacher's name? What was her name? Miss Jones, Miss Jenkins. Ooh, it's late. I need to be asleep. What the hell am I doing up? I don't know. Let me think about it. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. I 
wanted to thank Marcelina Morgan for that wonderful introduction. Um, and to say how delighted I am to be back at Stanford. Uh, I was an undergraduate here in the 70s, and I do believe that I took Anthro 1 in this very auditorium. Uh, and I learned a great deal about the intertwinings of politics and scholarship from the beginnings of feminist anthropology with Shelley Rizaldo and Jane Collier, um, as well as St. Clair Drake, uh, whose inspiration in terms of critical race theory was very important. Um, in keeping with the emphasis on the live body, with performance, the ephemerality of theater, um, I decided to forego PowerPoint and enlisted the aid of two Stanford students who were involved in the uh, residency of David Henry Wong's play Yellowface, Takeo Rivera and Trent Walker, who would be playing DHH and Marcus, respectively, and uh, many thanks to Harry Elam for helping to arrange that. On a recent Sunday evening, I made my way to the 1,000-seat Amundsen Theater in downtown LA to see Avenue Q, a long run on Broadway, and the winner of the 2004 Tony Award for Best Musical. From all I'd heard, Avenue Q promised to be young, fresh, innovative, uh, an X-rated 20-something Sesame Street. At one level, it was all those things. The music's jaunty, witty, and the book speaks to recent college grads trying to make their way in the world. Songs like what do you do with a BA in English and the internet is for porn? Capture the play's irreverent spirit. Princeton, a young college grad, falls for a neighbor. Kate, a slightly nerdy teacher who's a monster that is a minority. They fall in love, have puppet sex, and enter a relationship. As Kate describes her dream of building a monster story school where she can teach monster children, Princeton asks Kate if she's related to Trekkie monster who lives upstairs. Kate responds, no, not all monsters are related. What are you trying to say? That we all look the same to you? You should be much more careful when you're talking about the sensitive subject of race. Princeton asks Kate about her school. Well, could someone like me go there? No, we don't want people like you. You see, you're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. Everyone's, Everyone's a little, little bit racist, racist sometimes. Doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes. As the number unfolds, the whole cast demonstrates various racial and ethnic prejudices. The Asian dragon lady character who speaks with a dreaded accent, confusing R's and L's, is anti-Semitic. The African-American character Gary Coleman tells Polish jokes, and by the way, he fulfills that familiar um, helpmate to whites role so often assigned to people of color. Everyone's a little bit racist, instantiates contemporary contradictions in our dominant racial ideologies. On the positive side, the song notes that everyone harbors racial stereotypes, which is somewhat indisputable. How can one live in a racist society and not absorb its ideology to some extent? Um, more problematically, the song makes the predictable response uttered in the face of racial critique. If we all could just admit that we are racist a little bit and everyone stop being so PC, maybe we could live in harmony. Thanks, Trent. <laughs> so harmony. Harmony for Avenue Q equals the silencing of racial critique. Avenue Q is an emblematic performance of our power evasive racial common sense. Even with the best of intentions, this hip young musical, under the guise of fiction and satire, 
uh, reinforces the centrality of whiteness, posits race's power-free multicultural flavor, dismisses critiques of racial representation as mere political correctness at a moment when widespread racial critique is historically recent, and reduces to the level of individual consciousness racism as a structural, historical, and geopolitically overdetermined matrix of power. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore argues, quote, racism is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death, unquote. In Avenue Q and in our common sense racial ideologies, these life and death stakes magically disappear. I focus in my book, Revisions of Race, on work of by theater artists of color who are attempting interventions into this political landscape, actress, playwright, Anna Devere Smith, the Chicano Salvadoreño male trio, Culture Clash, and David Henry Wong, um, I both highlight the power-sensitive subversions and argue that none of us entirely escapes the reinscription of our hegemonic ideologies. I have um, long associations, especially with Smith, um, doing dramaturgy for her and will start in December on her current project, Let Me Down Easy, a meditation on the healthcare system bodies, aging, and death. Smith interviewed doctors at Stanford and Yale medical schools, cancer survivors, survivors of Hurricane Katrina, the Rwanda genocide, among others, truly revealing race, gender, class, and geopolitical position as, a, as differential relationships to mortality. Culture Clash, founded in 1984, has moved from political sketch comedy to site-specific documentary performance to their present mixed-genre revisionist stagings of California history. Their most recent work, Water and Power, is their first foray into tragedy. David Henry Wong's genre-bending farce uh, and faux documentary, uh, Yellowface, was workshopped here at Stanford, where the work of Harry Elam, student artists, and others enabled the initial shaping of the play. Uh, it had its world premiere at the Mark Taper Forum in LA in May. It opens at the Public Theater in New York in a couple of weeks. In my book, I argue that race is a point of entry for all these artists into explorations of art and politics. Race is a central motivating force that pushes them to challenge uh, aesthetic convention and to ask urgent political questions, how to understand our place in a larger historical and geopolitical matrix, how to make a difference in a world of stark inequality, how to imagine worlds differently. In their hands, theater becomes a side of struggle in the public sphere. And taking their cue, I see contemporary U.S. theater as both an ethnographic site and an arena of creative theoretical and political action in an anthropology of the public sphere. And here let me say just a few words about the specificity of theater. Before I started doing theater, I always thought, oh, theater, film, you know, it's all the same thing. Um, but I'd argue now that it can have a special power that can't be captured by film or TV. The presence of the audience in the same room as the actors creates a kind of communal shared space, an ephemeral community that's both material and political, creating what playwright Tony Kushner terms, quote, the powerful partnership between the audience and the staged event, unquote. In theater, audiences and performers affect each other, unlike the spectatorial relation in film. So theater, unlike film, is always open to the unexpected. Theater is a site where we can stage what Benjamin called wish images, a kind of Brechtian justice that makes visible the structure of social relations often hidden from our common sense. Theater can be especially effective in mobilizing our political desires precisely because it draws upon the powers of the sensorium uh, and this communal engagement in the public sphere, imbuing our wish images with deeply felt power. 
Some cultural critics see theater as a domain of elite culture and therefore politically problematic, yet one could equally argue that intervening in spaces like uh, the Academy and stages of regional theater and Broadway is critically important precisely because these are sites where hegemonies are, are reproduced. There were innocent school children being busted in to see Miss Saigon, for example. Um, and is it better to leave these Eurocentric patriarchal visions unchallenged? My colleague David Roman argues that too often the left has allowed its quote-unquote romance with the indigenous, the presumed authenticity of the grassroots or community to discourage serious appreciation of quote, the engagement of commercial theater with the central questions of contemporary culture. And indeed, Smith has uh, started up her Institute for the Arts and Civic Dialogue to promote the arts as a site for engaging these kinds of questions. Um, I'm happy to talk about the work of Smith and Culture Clash and questions and answers, but today to acknowledge the work done on Yellowface here at Stanford, uh, I wanted to concentrate on the play, arguing that it uh, enacts contradictions in contemporary racial discourses in ways that capture the zeitgeist and offer insight into dilemmas we face in a civil rights nation state uh, whose racial ideologies are vividly instantiated by Avenue Q. So, in David Henry Wong's Yellowface, an Asian-American playwright named DHH uh, leads a protest against the casting of a white actor as a Eurasian in the Broadway musical Miss Saigon, then inadvertently casts a white actor as an Asian in his own uh, play, uh, Broadway Flop, and hilarity ensues. So, Wong's faux documentary and comic memoir defies genre, destabilizes our conventional notions of race, and our rigid distinctions between truth and fiction. It uh, leads us to ask, what is race at this historical moment? Are the political formations forged in the 1960s adequate to the complexities of our lives now? As Huang argues, race and ethnicity are becoming increasingly porous, and quote, society is evolving another relation to race and identity, end quote. Act one of Yellowface throws open our notions of race as fixed essence. It suggests, as do current theories about race, that one cannot invoke ontology with race. One cannot say race is anything except a mobile fiction. In the opening scenes, B.D. Wong, the actor who played the lead on Broadway in Wong's M. Butterfly, calls DHH to break the news of the Miss Saigon casting issue, and DHH responds. You sure the actor's white? Maybe he's mixed race. Nowadays, it's so hard to tell. He could have a Caucasian father, so his last name wouldn't sound Asian, or maybe when he's one of those Korean adoptees, David, or... it's Jonathan Price. <laughs> Thank you. So Wong points to the complexities of contemporary racial formations, the increasing numbers of transracial adoptees and people of mixed races, the old categories burst at the seams, even as he also underlines the continuing centrality of whiteness. Now, both in real life and in the play, DHH writes a comedy of mistaken racial identity, face value, inspired by the Miss Saigon protest. And the creative team searches in vain for an Asian American actor to play the lead. They eventually cast Marcus Dahlman, an actor they assume to be Eurasian, though Marcus looks white. Eventually, DHH realizes the casting mistake and then tries to save himself through a desperate attempt to complete with images of Siberia and photos of a Siberian-American model to pass off Marcus as a Siberian Jew. Ultimately, Marcus is fired. Yet like the return of the repressed, Marcus continues to haunt DHH's life. The playwright discovers that the actor is now the lead uh, in a highly successful production of The King and I, and Act One ends with a rousing rendition of Shall We Dance as Marcus in costume of, as the King of Siam runs out triumphantly to thunderous applause. So Act One is this, this smart, hilarious deconstruction of race, a kind of self-mocking memoir, a provocative meditation on the notion of true identity. And at this point, one might fear that this uh, is a kind of postmodern 
free play in which race is reduced to mere skin color and shorn of power relations, yet Huang seems to be aware that race as a mobile fiction has power-laden consequences. As Act Two begins, he introduces conflict around this, excuse me, this issue. DHH runs into Marcus unexpectedly at a community function and confronts the imposter in a men's room. You're running around pretending to be Asian. You're lying to everyone. There, can you follow that? I'm trying really hard not to lie. Okay, now and then I have to mention the Siberian thing and that's unfortunate. But <laughs> as much as possible, I am doing my best to speak only the truth. Your whole life is a lie. You're letting people believe. You said yourself, didn't you? It doesn't matter what someone looks like on the outside. I didn't mean that literally. Then how did you mean it? I was just trying to save a, a situation. Like your ass. <laughs> David, do you have a problem with anything I'm saying? No, it's not what you're saying. It's that I'm the one who's saying it? Doesn't that make your position a bit racist? This is not that hard. In order to be Asian, you have to have at least some Asian blood. I'm just saying things that need to be said. Doing things that need to be done. I mean, someone's got to step up. To be perfectly honest, I've been attending a lot of community functions lately, and I don't see you at any of them. <laughs> You're lecturing me on how to be Asian? I was an Asian-American role model back when you were still a Caucasian. <laughs> you come in here with that, that, that face of yours, call yourself Asian. Everyone falls at your feet. But you won't have to live as an Asian every day of your life. No, you can just skim the cream, you, you, you ethnic tourist. <laughs> You're right. I don't have to live Asian every day of my life. I'm choosing to do so. Funny thing about race, you don't get to choose. If you had been born a minority, you'd know that. Thank you to Takeo to Trent. Bravo. Thank you. And they both played these respective roles during the, the oh, actual workshop. So in this scene, Huang articulates both common sense and scholarly takes on race. At one level, racial authenticity seems to mean enacting one's commitment to community. Thus, Marcus tries to elicit DHH's guilt to pose as the more morally advanced of the two. Marcus also utters a commonplace about race, the taking into account who says something, uh, rather than the lexical uh, meaning of a statement is racist. Such a view presumes that people are equally positioned in terms of power, that lexical meaning exhausts the significance of an utterance. But if one takes into account the historical and political context, what's at stake, who's speaking, who's being addressed with what intentions, then it in fact does matter who's saying something. Marcus's condescending attitude resonates with histories of Western imperialism, whereas Marx said, quote, they, the non-Western, the primitive, cannot represent themselves, they must be represented. And so DHH is correct in calling attention to the choice available to Marcus that's not available to racially marked subjects. In Act Two, principal the principal characters find themselves embroiled in the anti-Asian paranoia fueled by the fear of China's entry onto the international scene as a major world player. We find Marcus confronting the downside of adopting Asian American identity, the inevitable encounter with racism. Precisely as a result of his political activism, and because he's thought to be Eurasian, Marcus becomes an object of the FBI's investigations of the campaign finance scandals of the 1990s. 
Anti-Chinese paranoia eventually extends to accusations of influence peddling that engulfed DHH's father, the founder of the Far East National Bank, who's accused of laundering money for China. So if in Act 1, Huang suggests that racial categories are now more open and fluid than ever before, Act 2 shows us the persistence of familiar racisms, the fear of the yellow peril, the sneaky Asian, as they resurface in historically specific guises. As Huang said in an interview with me, quote, a, you have to deal with the disadvantages of assuming any identity, whether racial or not. And second of all, I think anyone has to acknowledge, as much as we can theorize that we are, we should be, or even that we are in a post-racial period, the reality of life on the ground is that we aren't. A complete examination of this means that you have to represent and explore both of those sides, unquote. And Yellowface Huang accomplishes those aims. Yellowface is equally notable for thematizing the slippery boundaries between truth and fiction. It keeps us guessing about what's autobiographical and what isn't, um, problematizing that very distinction. Um, and it foregrounds, um, through a conflict between DHH and a journalist, it foregrounds um, these issues. I don't have much time, so I'm going to sort of race through this, the ending here. Um, through its perceptive analysis of the enduring structures of racism, Yellowface goes beyond the power evasiveness of Avenue Q. I want to underline, however, that there can be no radical rupture with hegemony for any of us and that Huang inevitably operates within our regime of truth and reinscribes re other axes of power. For example, Huang's very perceptive analysis of a race in the U.S. plays counterpoint to uh, romanticizing of China, indeed to a tribe in China who becomes the symbol of a power evasive humanism uh, that dreams of fusion and perfect acceptance in ways that really uh, reinscribe modernist anthropology at its worst, I would say. Um, this happened at least in the version that premiered in Los Angeles, and I've actually given him five pages of notes. And I spoke with Michelle Elam yesterday, who said that she also talked to him. I think a lot of people have talked to him about it. So we'll see what happens uh, um, in the New York version. Um, but I do, but to, I would say that degrees of contestation are crucial in a context where Avenue Q is hegemonic. Yellowface is smart about race in the U.S. Um, and sophisticated in its meta-theoretical treatment of truth and fiction. The play's still in process. It premieres in two weeks, and the text will be in flux till then. Uh, my book, as well, is thus in process, and in fact thematizes process as crucial to the production of meaning. Um, for example, I've argued that what happens backstage with Anna Devere Smith's work is as important as what goes up on stage. Um, so I approach Huang's work in a spirit of dramaturgy, if you will. Um, as a colleague and hoping that, uh, you know, with all the comments we can push the work forward in what I hope are uh, progressive ways. Here drawing upon what I call anthropology's corporeal epistemology, bodily ways of knowing that emerge from participation in the theater world as playwright, dramaturg, and analyst, a partner in struggle. And uh, I want to sort of leave not, an, in a, what, what should I say, uh, in a, on a self-congratulatory note that, you know, we're teaching these benighted artists, you know, a thing or two or something, um, but to rather um, think about the ways that Huang's dilemma raises issues for all of us um, and thinking of the ways that power works. Um, and to think about our own politics of location as first world minoritarian subjects of an imperialist state and how that might um, affect our, our, our preempt a, a kind of serious scrutiny of our own sites of privilege where our, our own zones of sanctioned ignorance, if you will. So, and also by emphasizing one axis of power, what others uh, can be occluded in um, that focus. 
So artists and scholars are confronting the issues that Huang raises, how we negotiate analytically, existentially, and artistically between enduring structures of racism and shifting racial formations, including racialization and transnational frame. The artists with whom I work convince me that the stage and the arts are critically important arenas in the public sphere where we can intervene in our regimes of truth, address the urgent issues of our times, and create new visions of possibility. Good afternoon. <laughs> the title of my little presentation is called Thinking While Black, Rethinking the Public and Black Public Intellectual. In April of 2006, 88 faculty members at Duke University issued a public statement with regards to the still unfolding Duke lacrosse case. The statement which took the form of posters and a full-page ad in the campus newspaper was intended to shed light on how some of the campus's more marginalized bodies were processing the sudden media attention and speculation that served as a corollary to what was essentially a charge of rape. A significant number of those 88 Duke faculty members that signed the ad were part of the campus's contingent of black faculty. The ad and subsequent misreadings of its meanings and intents began what has been 18 months of criticism, racist diatribes, and intense scrutiny of the so-called Duke 88, with particular animus directed at black faculty, in particular black woman faculty within the group of 88. Uh, my colleague, Kerry Haney, who's in the back row there, has received at least three emails since he's been here at Stanford. Um, and he got here on Wednesday. What became immediately clear within the context of online comments on the sites of the campus newspaper, national and local print media, random and anonymous hate mail and phone calls, and the blogosphere where Durham in Wonderland, the blog of Brooklyn College history professor Casey Johnson was the most prominent, was that critics of the Duke 88 were not simply responding to a perceived liberal cabal that had presumed guilt of these three white male lacrosse players before due process, or the ongoing belief that women and faculty of color at elite schools were simply affirmative action hires who lacked legitimate scholarly credentials, but they were also responding to the fact that a group of black faculty dared to have a public voice about the case. There were many critics that were, in fact, incensed that black faculty, as an extension of some mythical black community, dared to have a thought that they could publicly articulate in the form of blog entries, op-eds, critical essays, appearances on television and radio news pro programs, and a proverbial newspaper quotable. In other words, black faculty were criticized for thinking while black. Some of the most vocal critics of the black members of the Duke 88 made the point that those who spoke out did so to further research agendas or as a means of manufacturing a racist discourse within the academy as an effort to justify their presence on elite campuses like that at Duke. Still others deny that black faculty even had the intellectual capacity to function within the academy, illiterate and bad grammar interlocutors who had little value to the academy unless their scholarship was tethered to some specious claim that blackness was capable of producing knowledge. Of course, these are not new critiques, but they raise interesting questions as a generation of black scholars come to public voice, often beyond the confines of racialized discourse. 
What responsibility do faculty of color have with regards to having a public voice? And how do we define public? The Duke 88 faculty clearly saw our campus community as a discrete public, but one that was easily appropriated into larger publics that coalesced around the discourses of race, gender, whiteness, privilege, sexuality, and the judicial process. And finally, given the ways that the Duke Lacrosse case concretizes efforts to demonize faculty of color who do have progressive political public voices, how can the value of this distinct form of knowledge production be acknowledged alongside the more traditional modes of scholarly production in the academy? In order to respond to some of these questions, I'd like to offer up an example, offer up the example of celebrity intellectual Mike Eric Dyson. Recently, one of my colleagues jokingly referred to Michael Eric Dyson's Know What I Mean Reflections on Hip Hop as the latest offering in the Michael Eric Dyson Book of the Month Club. It was a grudging, though derisive, admission of Dyson's level of productivity as an author. Know What I Mean, which is largely a collection of conversations that Dyson has had over the past few years, represents his 14th publication in just as many years. His first collection of essays, Reflecting Black, was published in 1993. Since January of 2005, Dyson has published tests on Hurricane Katrina, one of the seven deadly sins, pride, the specter of race in contemporary American political discourse, and of course, Bill Cosby's rhetorical drive-by on the black poor. Given Dyson's prolific output and heightened visibility, it should not be surprising that some of his peers within the academy accuse him of pandering to the marketplace, while many outside of the academy view him as little more than a race hustler. The same goes for Dyson's productivity for movement from one elite institution to another. The publication of Know What I Mean coincided with the announcement that Dyson had accepted a new position as university professor at Georgetown University. In contrast to, his so to, in contrast to this so-called conventional wisdom, I'd like to suggest that for nearly two decades, Dyson has carried the water, not only for the principles of being a civically engaged scholar and intellectual, but for the field of African-American studies and many mutations, including the burgeoning field of hip-hop studies. As such, my comments are not meant to defend Michael Eric Dyson as it is meant to defend the vocation that he, as well as many others, have brilliantly upheld with guile, intelligence, passion, and an unwavering commitment to the issues of social justice. So for a moment, let's assume that Michael Eric Dyson is the intellectual equivalent of an ambulance chaser. But we're not talking about some nefarious accident lawyers or, law or tow truck drivers who lay in wait to profit from the misfortunes of others. Who lay in wait, but an Ivy League trained scholar, author, and public thinker of some distinction. The recurring presumption here is that Dyson's public profile and celebrity are somehow premised on his exploitation of the misery of, black, of the black folk he ostensibly represents. This widely circulated and decidedly worn poverty pimp thesis has been applied to figures as diverse as Reverend Jesse Jackson, Cornell West, and the current cadre of hip hop generation intellectuals who supposedly, as the critique goes, wallow in victimization and refuse to hold the black rank and file, particularly black youth, accountable for bad behavior. This chorus from the choir of common sense populism, which Linda Martine Alcoff argues the intellectual sir, in which the uh, in, in which Linda Altern argues that the term intellectual often serves as epithet, holds merely for those who refuse to value the labor of those whose mode of activism is best realized via corporate media, including the publishing houses, and elite universities, and who leverage the resources of those institutions to do the work of social justice. 
The populism of common sense suggests that the attainment of wealth and celebrity could be the only motivations for trafficking in the marketplace of ideas. Unfortunately, the either-or logic that pits grassroots activism and traditional political agitation against the work of the mind undermines the complexity and severity of the issues that our communities face. And what the hell is so inherently wrong with one who lives the life of the mind? What, and what the hell is inherently wrong with one who lives the life of the mind, employing the tools of her vocation as scholar, public intellectual, and media interlocutor to bring sense and sensibility to the existential, cultural, political, moral, and spiritual crises that face our communities, particularly in the moment that such crises present themselves? Temple University philosopher Lewis Gordon suggested, quote, what's crucial about the controversy is whether it stimulates policy or simply stimulates more speaking engagement, unquote. Adding that there are, quote, certain individuals when things are said and done, you don't know what the issues are, you only know who they are. Norman Kelly defines such figures as African-American market intellectuals who profit while they profit selling attitude. These are legitimate critiques of anyone who traffics in ideas in the public square and the marketplace, often one and the same. Nevertheless, such critiques fail to consider the reality of the contemporary media landscape, for which the critical issues of the day are often presented to mainstream audiences as little more than appendages to personalities sanctioned by corporate media interests. Should black intellectuals simply concede that this is a terrain that they shouldn't or can exploit in the best interests of communities in need of social justice? Of course not. The ability of the black intelligentsia to manipulate the blogosphere, blackprofessor.com being a good example, are evidence of the value of black intellectuals embracing the technologies of the day. But the reality is that many academics, regardless of race, find it difficult to talk across academic disciplines, let alone to audiences that exist beyond the academy. Many of these same academics are profoundly limited in their ability to translate their research and ideas in layperson's terms. What is needed is what Alcroft describes as public theorists, those who do intellectual work in the public domain. It is Dyson's ability to make himself and his work accessible to lay audiences, ironically much like grassroots activists, that make him a target for those folks within the academy and elsewhere who don't believe that his work is rigorous enough. While part of Dyson's prestige early in his career was clearly rooted in his ability to write for a literate and middle-class public that was largely believed to be white, he recognized that his ideas needed to circulate on myriad levels. As James Peterson, a literature professor at Bucknell University, observes, quote, we need multimedia platforms. We need to have record albums to do radio programs, do the television shows, be in film. That's what gets to the people. That's the literature of the future. When Dyson appeared on both NBC's Today Show and BET's Rap City on the same day to promote his book as Bill Cosby Wright back in 2005, it was clear that there were few within the academy who could effectively circulate in such disparate spaces, though such disparate spaces are inhabited by black public intellectuals well below the radar on mainstream commercial television. In this regard, Dyson is, as Cornel West has suggested, really unprecedented, but not necessarily so. One could argue, for example, that W.E.B. Du Bois' manipulation of the forms of the sermon, music and cultural criticism, the memoir, political theory, historical narrative, and the eulogy throughout the pages of The Souls of Black Folks is really the precursor to the very multimedia strategies that Dyson and others manipulate contemporarily. I make this point to suggest that such scholars are the contemporary embodiments of the best of the black tradition of public intellectualism. Dyson's ability to circulate in multiple publics and media spheres is predicated on his ability to seamlessly switch codes. 
while few would quibble with his ability to break bread with church congregations, the white bread audiences that comprise the base of NPR and C-SPAN, traditional academics and congressional committees, committees, it is ultimately his ability to reach black youth and to seriously consider the cultures they produce that animates derision against him. In contrast, it is very difficult to listen to the critiques of figures like jazz critic Stanley Crouch or sports writer Jason Whitlock, who were both elevated to national visibility in the aftermath of the Don Imus controversy and not believe that they fundamentally hate black youth, or at least that they think black, or what they think black youth represent. Figures like Crouch and Whit Whitfield seemingly only have presence in mainstream media culture because they so consistently deride black youth. Dyson notes, for example, that, quote, the tragedy is that we have failed to come to grips with the enormous achievement of our children because we're so angry with them. The world, larger world embraces them in ways that we have failed to do, unquote. This line of reasoning on Dyson's part, though, is not a retreat from offering criticism of black youth. And know what I mean? Dyson knows, quote, that our moral traditions may lead us to repudiate much of the worst of what black youth do while applauding much of what the best of them do. The problem is that we often do not know how to make those distinctions, unquote. Such is the case when Dyson shides Black Enterprise Magazine founder Earl Graves for asserting, in reference to Jay-Z, that, quote, nobody with tattoos on their body or low-slung pants can tell me anything. Graves, whose business is business, is part of a generation of black gatekeepers seemingly out of touch in which the world in which Curtis Jackson, 50 Cent, can make millions endorsing vitamin-enriched water, and Sean Carter, Jay-Z, can buy out his founding partners in a hip-hop style clothing line for less than $30 million, only to flip it a year later for more than $200 million while retaining creative control. Dyson's work has often demanded a rigorous, even devout engagement with popular culture, some of those who deem his work as simplistic or cunning lies and garbage, to quote Paul R. Griffin, a professor of religion at Wright State University, often reflect their own tangential relationship, intellectually at least, with the cultural discourses that clearly impact black youth and others. Simply put, Dyson does close readings of texts that many deem unworthy of such attention, in that the context of a, in, in the context of a media-driven culture that relishes in the manipulation of, what, of that which exists on the surface. Some may reject the significant gestures of Dyson and an increasing amount of younger scholars, Imani Parrish, Tracy Sharpley Whiting, DeVarian Baldwin, Craig Watkins Jr., to name a few, make toward the complexity of popular culture because they don't value or understand the role of popular culture as a site of ideological production. These gestures resonate little in the public sphere if they are not packaged with a real-time literacy of contemporary popular culture, and quite frankly, many traditional scholars of African-American studies are fundamentally incapable of doing so. And there's the rub. Dyson and his ilk are thus left open to charges like those from critic Norman Kelly that, quote, black intellectuals don't care about real problems. They are into theory and pop culture, unquote. But one of the problems that black youth face is with the pursuit of literacy the literal tool that many black youth need to match in order to negotiate the world within public school apparatuses that have little interest in equipping many of their students with critical skills beyond test taking. I've personally witnessed young people who've read Dyson's book on Tupac, in particular the chapters on the late rapper's taste in reading material, and then proceeded to read many of the books that purportedly Tupac read. And while the cynic in all of us would like to believe that the sales of books by Donald Goins and Iceberg Slim were stimulated by the late rapper's reading habits, the rally is that Tupac's bookshelf included Jay-Z Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, Jamaica Kincaid's At the Bottom of the River, 
Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick, Eileen Southern's groundbreaking music of black America, as well as the feminist writings of Alice Walker in Search of Our Mother's Gardens, and Robin Morgan's edited volume, Sisterhood is Powerful, anthology of writings from women's liberation movement. This is not to romanticize about the crisis that exists in American public schools, but to temper our dismissal of popular culture as an agent in the education and politicizing of American youth. As such, <coughs> Dyson and many within the hip hop generation intelligentsia, including Bakari Kitwana and Jeff Chang, have leveraged the appeal of popular culture in order to facilitate serious discussion around on the ground issues like violence, incarceration, sexual assault and rape, voter disenfranchisement, and environmental justice. In recent years, Dyson has in particular made a point of challenging his audiences about their sexism, misogyny, and homophobia. The now defunct Michael Eric Dyson show was illuminating in this regard, and it's the reason why it's the now defunct Michael Eric Dyson show, in ways that simply counter charges that he panders to his audience. Dyson's lengthy conversation with filmmaker Byron Hurt, portions of which appear in Hurt's important documentary, Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes, is exemplary of this aspect of Dyson's work. In the introduction to Know What I Mean, Jay-Z writes, Dyson, quote, makes modern life serious, takes modern life seriously and brings the tools of so-called legitimate society to bear on a place that too many dismiss as unworthy of attention. But there's a collateral point here. Dyson also uses hip-hop's own unique critical tools to hold a mirror up to said, legit, said legitimate society. It's in this context that Dyson could point out that hip-hop culture is, quote, alive and desperate to breathe, so much so that it has launched a withering attack from within the industry that houses it, as embodied by folks like Rosa Clemente, Marcelina Morgan, Davey D, Joan Morgan, Gwendolyn Pugh, Danny Hawk, William Jelani Cobb, and so many others who did not grace the stage of Oprah Winfrey's hastily constructed town meeting. In contrast, Dyson rightly asked, where's the parallel and public critique of the black church where patriarchy and bling reign in the gospel prosperity with greater ugliness than in hip hop, unquote. This is perhaps what offends many about Dyson, that a clearly brilliant Ivy League credential scholar would expend so much energy, time and passion on the lies and concerns that of those that some, even in the black community, would rather remain invisible. It just goes against all common sense. But common sense rarely challenges the traditions and sensibilities that have locked marginalized communities into the same patterns of misery. Thank you. Thank you. And if the uh, panel can come to the stage uh, for questions. And um, we're asking that um, you use the mic um, for your questions and comments. Um, if at all possible, we have both Frank and uh, Donna Lisa here uh, on the mic. So if you just raise your hand, they will bring mic to you. Are we still trying to get students to speak? I have a question for uh, Glenda. I couldn't help but notice uh, the title of Wanda Sykes' performance, Tongue Untied. The resonances, of course, with Marlon Riggs, Tongues Untied. And um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on any kind of possible uh, intersubjectivity between these uh, black female performers and queer black male subjectivities, or, or what's going on there with the use of that title? Um. That's an interesting question. Um, I'm gonna, this is going to sound like a cop out, but I hadn't really thought about that connection. So, but it 
I, I'll think about it. It's a really good one. I, I think that uh, some of the work of Marlon Riggs is also uh, concerned with the abiding um, influence of stereotypes. So certainly, uh, there's that connection right there. Um, what I find interesting too about that question is that um, a lot of uh, people, uh, sort of black men, uh, black gay men, really love the queens of comedy. Um, and I wonder what that connection's about too in a separate sphere. As we're waiting up for, especially students who will have questions uh, <laughs> to formulate them. There's a, yeah, over here. and also I, I know the panelists also have questions and then after that um, we will be calling names. So. Uh, hi, my comment is uh, actually to your last, uh, you wouldn't make it in the hip hop world, but you definitely got down the uh, relationship between the black intelligentsia and popular culture. Um, my question is actually about uh, what I still consider to be the slippery slope of commodification. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people, you know, Dyson and, and Cornel West, um, that um, man don't manipulate the slope very well. And the tendency is that if you can get popularized and at the same time um, get yourself prestigious positions within academia, then it's okay if you use your popularity and your fame uh, because you still get to be considered to be a black, uh, in, you know, uh, uh, genius and, you know, an Ivy League scholar, um, but at the same time what you're actually um, basing your mobility on is that pop part of you which is in fact commodifiable within the context of the way America likes to commodify certain things, whether there's value in it or intelligence in it or not. Thank you for that question. Um, it is a slippery slope, um, and, and I think for me it, it represents a couple of things. One, it, that's going to be a space that's going to be created, right? And, and I don't think black intellectuals, because of the problems associated with that, should simply decide that some of them can't function in that way. Um, one of the downside of it is, and again, you read this in some of the critiques of public intellectuals, that very often folks frame their opinions of these intellectuals based on the 30 second to two minute sound bites they hear on a program and use that as a basis not to actually go and deal with the work. You know, if we were dealing with intellectuals who weren't actually producing work, um, we could have a legitimate conversation I think about how problematic that is. But most of these folks are in fact doing work. Now, you know, some of their appearances are almost wholly motivated by this desire to sell books. And I think, you know, to be quite honest, and, and this is something that I've been grappling with, you know, for a bit now, I, I think the left, you know, really has to, to do better about the way that we romanticize about being impoverished. <laughs> I mean, the left really needs to develop a critique that accepts that, you know, making money is not antithetical to our social justice, our social justice mechanisms. That in fact, real economic resources allow us to do the kinds of work that we need to do. So that when you hear somebody like Khalid Kweli, in one of his recent songs, um, who talks about, you know, some black history group wants to, you know, wants to have him involved. He's like, yeah, I can learn everything I want to learn about black history, but when I ask them about how they're going to make money, they don't have a critique, right? So what do we do with all of these institutions that, you know, continue to be locked into relationships with funders, 
you know, who often don't have the best interest in those, in those institutions in order to do the kind of work that they do. And I don't have an answer for that, but I think it's something that the left, I mean, the left really has romanticized this notion of being the poor, impoverished, you know, grassroots intellectual. And I really think at this point in time, right, when you have figures like, for instance, a Jay-Z who's worth $300 million, right, when you consider Jay-Z's wealth and, say, a Russell Simmons' wealth, a, a, a Curtis Jackson's wealth, right, you know, we need to find a better language because the kind of wealth that they have amassed at the ages that they are, right, they're all under 40, right, it's really unprecedented, right, and somehow to think that we shouldn't as intellectuals and thinkers have a relationship with them, right, and so that at least there's somebody in their ear that's encouraging them, right, to, to channel their money in ways that are helpful to our community is a mistake, and I think that's why the engagement with popular culture and also the engagement in terms of mainstream culture is very important for black intelligentsia, right? We need to be able to frame those conversations, right, even if it translates in some ways to personal wealth. And again, we never know what folks actually do with the money that they make, right? We, we often just make presumptions about it. Yeah. Before we pass the mic, I, I see a panelist nodding their head and just want to make sure if there's anyone who wants to make additional comments. You just Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for some amazing and uplifting and fun papers. It sounded like you were enjoying Awesome. <laughs> I was just <laughs> totally gigging on the papers. Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering, I, I want to sort of go back to this question about commodification and popular culture and this thing um, that you said about popular culture being a site of ide ideological change. Because part of what's happening, I think, in this conversation is um, about the spectrum of black political ideas and how we actually choose to approach things. And so in my mind, part of it has to do with a question of modesty and some people wanting to hold on to, to modesty, you know, as a, as a terrain that critiques sort of like the, you know, the bling bling in the black church or the bling bling that can be commodified by big capital. So that's, that's one way you know, that I think about it. But I guess the, the other piece about wealth creation, I know a lot of um, you know, black radicals have talked about wealth creation as being this cultural, cultural wealth and not necessarily moneyed wealth, um, you know, which can be challenging, you know, because you actually need the moneyed wealth as well as the cultural wealth, or, or maybe you don't need it. But I'd be curious to hear from all of you all, and I, I don't know if, um, you know, like in Wanda Sykes' work, or in the, I, I seem to remember in the Queens of Comedy them having some discussions about money. Um, <laughs> so. Well, considering that um, Dave Chappelle's uh, work has, was like the biggest sale of DVD ever, I mean, it blew up, right? And, and the whole controversy about him leaving um, had so much to do with the commodification of stereotype driven art, right? So that we have. Um, both, uh, you know, it's talking about how the seg uh, segregated black human was for so long, right? But now it's almost as if it's like it, certain parts of black culture, hip hop, uh, comedy, uh, not yet Wanda Sykes, right? Uh, but definitely Dave Chappelle. It's, you know, they're hot commodities. And you have to wonder also um, how, why, what's, you know, it's difficult to do research on on this stuff because, you know, it's DVDs, people are watching them in their privacy of their own home. Uh, why are people so compelled by Chappelle? He's definitely a brilliant uh, artist and that's the, for sure one of the reasons, but that's not only the, the only reason, right? So um, I think we need to have a, also the con conversation about the, the power, but also the 
commodity value of black popular, popular culture um, and um, the history of that commodity, right? Because you have that, God, it's not a new thing, right? Um, certainly the history of minstrelsy can show you that. My question uh, ties in, well, it's, it's open to all three of you, but I want to begin with something that Mark began um, talking about uh, with the Duke 88. Uh, and you were saying that you found that the majority of people who you know, got the most grief, essentially, uh, for the ad and the statements were the black female academics, right? Uh, you know, so even though the presentation was more on a black male academic. Uh, and I'm curious to, to get a sense of sort of black female public intellectuals. And I'm thinking in terms of, you know, putting, Anna DeVere Smith, you know, sort of throwing her in the mix here. And it seems to me that what she does that's a little different is she, she will say, I'm not speaking for people, I'm letting people speak through me, right? You know, and I'm thinking of, you know, her collaboration with Lonnie Guineer at Harvard, you know, when the Civic Institute was there. You um, know, so I'm just trying to get a sense of, well, how does sort of societal sort of acknowledgement of or expectations of black female public intellectuals differ from um, the expectations for black male intellectuals. Is it sort of this thrall with a preacher to sort of speak for others um, or what? I'm just curious to know what you guys have to say about that. I, I would begin even from a different vantage. Um, I would ask to what extent do we ever see black women's subjectivity in mainstream culture? Um, you know, that we would find a place for black women intellectuals in the culture presumes that there's actually a subject space for black women that's vibrant and that exists beyond caricatures of Oprah Winfrey and Condoleezza Rice. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things I found most disturbing about the Duke Lacrosse case um, was the inability of anybody who looked at, besides black women right, and some black men, but the inability of folks who were covering the case and looking at the various motivations to ever take the time to try to figure out what this young black woman at the center of this was ever thinking about. Right? And even when folks tried to explain that subject it was always dismissed because the larger public has no context in which to think about black women that way. So you find yourself celebrating, you know, a water commercial, right? There's this, one of these water covers, Propel, right? Propel has this, this little commercial where a woman is getting her jog on, right? With a bottle of her Propel, right? And as she's walking down the block, suddenly she's in this fantasy world where John Stamos and Derek Jeter and 3-6 Mafia and all these folks are looking at her, and it's not a sexualized gaze, right? But it's just, wow, right? That's a beautiful woman. And that's actually a radical concept in contemporary culture now, right? That black women are viewed ever in that context. So I think, you know, we have to do real work of trying to find a black woman's subjectivity, right, within the context of mainstream culture before we ever get to a point where folks will think about black women intellectuals in that way. Yeah, it, it, can I just yeah. respond in terms of Anna DeVere Smith? Um, it's interesting because I think that in terms of, the, of mainstream reception, uh, her sub, well, in a, in a sense, her intellect and subjectivity have been erased in a, in a sense. So that the ways that she's often written about in the mainstream press is that she's a vessel or that she's a shaman and she's possessed, right? So it's like all those years of classical training, right? <laughs> the incredible interviews that she does, her commitment to social justice, you know, like her amazing bookshelf that has more stuff on post-colonial theory than I could ever read, um, kind of disappear in that sort of, you know, that she's simply invaded, right, by these others. So she just becomes the empty womb or the vessel or the mammy to the nation kind of thing. 
So um, in response, I think that that's part of the reason why she is um, trying, you know, she's begun the Institute for the Arts and Civic Dialogue as an arena that fosters um, politically progressive work in a variety of genres and in which, you know, the arts feature is a prominent site in which we can engage these kinds of inter urgent intellectual political questions. Yeah, I, I, uh, if, if you don't mind, I want, want to ask the pan panelists a question. Uh, and this is based on just thinking about something like Ave Avenue Q and the other, um, um, just comedy in general and this notion of sort of public presence and something that we've been talking a lot uh, about here at Stanford. And that is, you know, where we are in terms of public uh, culture and in, 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 in actually being able to talk about race in a way that actually represents in, in, in many respects the way people actually live their lives um, um, and what the possibilities might be because I read about Avenue Q and as I read about the as I read the reviews I tend to read about something long before I ever see it and I want to know how it begins, you know, begin, middle, middle, I want to know everything, and I don't want to see it fresh. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I became suspicious and said, I don't want to see it. It's racist. It's anybody that's racist, you know, some, something about the description. And then when you, you went to, to see, see it and talked about it, I was shocked at how explicit uh, some of it, it's not about race. It's about no color lines or something. So how do we then, you know, on the other hand, deal with these comedians who, are, are often, you know, talking about race in ways that, from my perspective, often very insulting um, under the guise of comedy. And so, and it's not really parody. And, you know, I know it's not parody. You know, it's what, whatever. So how does that fit within this particular, and how, how do each of you approach, because there's a line out there, and we know we talk about it in terms of, of audiences, but there's, it's also related to, um, interpretation, but it's so much about, you know, what we're, we're doing here at this conference. And so how do you, in your work, approach these kinds of, of fine lines? And if possible, I'd like everyone to, to respond to that. Well, one of the reasons why I, sh I, I picked the, the Sykes uh, chapter that we saw was because she actually de-emphasizes race, although she doesn't erase it, right? Um, and it's very subtle the way in which race is on stage, but not uh, to be gawked at, right, uh, and not to be an issue, right? So it's interesting, you know, look at it, right? It's all, it's an, a, an amazing moment, right, because it's, it's so in your face, uh, confrontation with sexuality, right? Um, and um, she's not necessarily saying, look, it, the, the, the use of it is actually really uh, interesting in the whole thing, right, because she never, she never actually, unlike the queens of comedy, she never curses, she doesn't um, even name it, right? Um, so there's a way in which you can um, use artistic forms to actually not escape some of the issues that you're talking about, right? But actually make, kind of dance around it and by doing so highlight it actually, uh, ironically enough. Um, so, um, you know, some ways, uh, the, the use of stereotypes is something that preoccupies me, right? And I am interested in people like Pryor, who did talk about race incredibly explicitly and in ways that really did offend a lot of people, right? Uh, just using the N-word uh, in mixed audiences. When, when he did, he, was, he really was a pioneer in that respect, for better or for worse, right? Um, 
But um, I do think that um, we need to talk about the artistry of, 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 of people. I think most of the time we forget, um, in our rush to talk about politics, we forget that people achieve a lot through art, um, and, and that at, they do get at politics, but they do it through form. Yeah, I wanted to echo that um, notion of um, formal intervention yeah. and a craft that is so important. And I think about, um, for example, some of the work done by Culture Clash, who, you know, have been taken to task for their maleness and so on and so forth, rightfully so. But um, in terms of the ways that they can use uh, humor to deflate the dominant, I think it's it's been uh, often very effective. Um, and it, in part, it seems to me, it also depends. It's again, as like who's speaking to you know, what's the context? Um, what's the so what are, who are the players, and what's the what's at stake uh, uh, geopolitically, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, when Avenue Q, what is disturbing is the ways that you know, oh, it's just fiction, it's just humor, it's just satire, and you know, I had huge fights with people actually in my play, playwriting class, for example, about that. You know, that we should just simply you know, dismiss it, it means nothing, um, simply because it's humorous or satirical. Um, you know, I'd argue otherwise. Um, on the other hand, you know, I actually, when I write creatively, I tend to write, and I don't know why, but I only write comedy, um, pretty much. And so, you know, I would also like to think that there's a way in which that can also um, have a, an aspect of uh, social critique, right, that can be taken seriously. Thank you so much. I just I appreciate uh, the the uh, all the panelists' talks and and you know thinking to about Harvey's question too and the way you were just characterizing Anna Deaver Smith and Dave Chappelle and artistic and political interventions. Uh, they did seem like it was offering another kind of political social commentary that is a different model, even if it seems a, t a little bit oblique, than um, somebody like uh, Dyson. And, and they're in, it is, you know, one of the critiques of Dyson of, is the HNIC factor, is that, that, I, that I heard in what you were speaking to, is, you know, white America also likes to go to Booker T. Washington or Skip Gates or, one, or Dyson, one person who's channeling and representing the race and who's self-appointed. And... Um, and I, you know whether or not he cultivates it or not, but I do think that um, the 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 artists, both male and female, offer another kind of vision of a sort of political uh, I wouldn't say leadership, but intervention that kind of uh, circumvents that a little. And I'm interested in how that dovetails with you know, uh, I don't know another feminist model or just a different model that they're usually not put in in relationship to each other. But having you up there on the panels made me has made me think about them. But I. Uh well, it's interesting to me because partially also is trying to write creatively myself. I've become, I've come to think that, you know, classic formal models, say Aristotelian drama, right, that has a protagonist is itself highly problematic politically, right? And so whoever you choose is your protagonist, like everybody else is secondary. So now I'm trying to foreground Asian American women, but it's like, oh. Right? So um, what Anna Devere Smith is doing, and I think what Culture Clash kind of did in their early days in a certain way, is sort of breaking up that protagonism, the single, you know, the always already masculine hero of our narratives. And so for that, I mean, Smith refuses to have like a through line, right? The journey, there isn't one. Um, and so it, 
is disturbing on many levels, but I think it, it is a real formal intervention in others. And it's very interesting to me that Culture Clash is now moving toward more single authorship, and they are moving toward a more, what shall we say, the well-made play. So that Water and Power now is authored by Richard Montoya, one of them, and there's a protagonist. Very interesting. Okay, I think this might be our last question. Um, I was just curious because the, the, the panel is um, addressing diversity in the public sphere. And I'm interested in this process of becoming public because it seems like a lot of the um, works that you guys are talking about in the moments are at their generative moment, not necessarily public, but they go through a process of becoming public and through that process may encounter um, issues of commercialization and things like that. Rather than um, become, coming out of a more classic notion of, of public, I would, th I would think because of, of exclusion of minorities from the public sphere generally, these, these, these moments in which um, these things are allowed to happen generally come out of a more um, private sphere, I would say, or a, a um, or it, through the theater, or through through something that is is less public than, say, you know, um, art in the in in the a public plaza in the city or something like that. So I I, I w I'm just curious on your comments on the process of, for instance, the the stage presentation or or a comedy um, becoming part of a public dialogue versus being in that moment of, um, it, or it's process of coming to public, I guess. Um, okay, I guess I'll speak a little bit of that. Um, I, I think um, because the question, some of the questions that came to my mind when I was listening to you, um, uh, the pros and cons of going public, right? Um, what, what's lost, for example, in black humor when, you know, you tell a joke uh, within a group and what happens when you share with other people? Um, usually the laughter changes, the joke changes, people don't know if they should laugh. Um, I taught a class on black humor at Harvard recently and most of the time people are, you know, there's a nervous energy, you know, if it's in a mixed crowd, right? Um, when I, I would uh, show, um, you know, prior to stuff uh, to, or, you know, Eddie Murphy doing the bush bitch thing, right? I mean, all the girls were really upset, you know, they were laughing, but they were also like, that's not funny, right? So the, the what's funny and what, what's not funny, when you're in a kitchen, um, you can share that, right? But when you come out into the public and put it out, then all kinds of questions come out, right? Context, um, and uh, also, different ideologies and so on and so forth. I think um, becoming public, the other, what I want to say really briefly is that there are a lot of pros and cons, some of which are, um, but the, in the pros category is that you can actually use that um, tension of am I allowed to laugh to actually get somewhere in terms of opening up public discourse. Um, so I'll just leave it at that for now. I'm, I'm very much a, a Nancy Frazier kind of guy on this question. Um, I, I don't think we're ever talking about a public sphere. I think we're always talking about multiple public spheres um, and counter public spheres. Um, and the idea of what public is shifts 
Um, yeah. You know, 20 people in a theater and a poetry reading is a, is a discrete public, right? And its, and its value in terms of public work as an artist, as an intellectual, as a more broad-based mainstream public sphere that's clearly connected to the marketplace. Um, so I think at some point we always have to value these shifts in what public is. Um, there are folks who are going to be absolutely concerned and satisfied with working in very small publics that, that are not going to transcend and be commodified. And I think, you know, the issue of private space, um, I think is an interesting conversation when you actually try to attach private space to questions literally of space. Right, and when, there's, when it comes to a point where there's very little space for there to be private space, you know, the private bleeds into the public. Uh, I mean, that's part of what Bill Cosby is trying to respond to in his rhetorical drive-by about the black poor. You know, when there's literally very little livable space, you know, for poor people, everything that we think that's behind closed doors, the model of the black, you know, community from 50 years ago where there's a clear line between segregation and, and, and there's a clear line of segregation and, and everything that happens behind the veil right, the mainstream white public never knows about, you know, when space increasingly disappears in a physical and literal sense, you know, all those kind of dysfunctionalities that we'd like to disappear and kind of shove under the rug, that stuff becomes very public. You know, how did Bill Cosby say? You know, it gets out at 3 o'clock, you know, every day, right? And while I don't agree with his critique around that, I mean, that's the reality, right? And I think, you know, what's interesting around this public and, and private conversation, and something I think is very explicit, you know, in the context of the hip-hop generation. You know, the private was where we kept the things that we were ashamed of. The hip-hop generation can't be shamed. <laughs> I mean, literally, right? And that's part of what offends the old guard in terms of what the hip-hop generation does. That They're not ashamed to put everything out on Front Street, right? And at the very least, that creates a context in which we can publicly critique the kinds of things that we never wanted to talk about because we would just shove it under the bed. Just look at it. Yeah, just look at it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank thank you very much. Uh, the preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.